everyone, and welcome back to the ENC podcast. We are so glad that you've joined us again today for another episode of our Conversations That Matter series. Uh, for this episode, uh, Moesha Daniel is joining me as the co-host. Welcome back to the podcast, Moesha. Oh, thank you, Shelby. It has been a while. <laughs> it has been a while. If you remember, uh, Moesha was one of the, the founding members of the podcast. So Thursdays with Mo and Joe dates all the way back to March. Um, so this week, uh, we are joined by another special guest. We're so glad to have her joining us today. Um, Rebecca Dean, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, Shari. It's yeah. like an honor to be with you guys. <laughs> I know. I, I so wish that we could have you on campus like we had initially planned. Yeah, maybe, hopefully, at some, at some point, maybe next year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yep, absolutely. So for those of you in the ANC community that attended chapel, um, Rebecca was actually supposed to come as a speaker this past spring, but of course with um, COVID-19 that uh, got canceled. But we are glad to at least have you as a speaker virtually for our fall series, um, as well as on the podcast. So for those, Rebecca, that maybe haven't um, heard of you or read your book yet, um, could you tell us just a little bit about yourself? Yeah, thank you. My name is Rebecca Ding. I am a South Sudanese American. I was born in Sudan um, and then um, left my uh, hometown or my village when I was six years old because of the war that was happening there, civil war. Um, and then, so I left in 91 and then came to Kakuma refugee camp, which is in northern Kenya, Turkana district, and was at the refugee camp for eight years. And then I came to the U.S. in 2000 as an accompanied refugee uh, child through the program Lost Boys and Lost Girls of Sudan. Uh, most of people hear of the Lost Boys, but there were 89 girls that came. Um, so that's how I came to the U.S. I became a U.S. citizen in 2006 and went to high school here, college, and graduate school here in the U.S. Wow, that is awesome. Thank you so much for sharing part of your story with us. And I'm, I'm sure that we're going to dive a little bit further into that um, throughout this interview today. But I thought maybe before we do dive too deep into that, could you tell us just a little bit about what the pandemic has looked like for you and your family? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the pandemic now, um, <clears throat> it kind of like, it is in an interesting way, it kind of take me back to the time of being in a refugee camp where we didn't know what will be happening next month or next year, like where you just kind of leap each day at a time. So in a sense is that because of my life experience in a refugee camp, I have developed like a resilient response to kind of similar situation. So like COVID-19 is hard that you can go see your family members and you cannot, which is like in a refugee camp, you were always around people. Um, so it's hard in that sense, it's different. But at the same time, like mentally, like not being able to know what is coming next, uh, I have handled it well, you know, because I have been through that kind of situation before where you don't know what is coming next. And then you just hope that, you know, thing will get better. Um, so there have, have been a time of reflection at the same time about things that really matter and things that we, you know, because we are in a society that is a lot of like materials and a lot of individual thing and 
and and a lot of uh, a lot of, I would say a lot of stuff that we worry about that are not really necessary. Um, so now it make me think a lot of like the importance of community. It doesn't matter if it is a community like that is a school or a church or a club that come together and how those things are like much better than us just owning our own homes or big homes or something like that. Because I feel like for me now it should be a reflection time for those who are indoors to be like, yes, you can enjoy the comfort of your home, but then it becomes clear that you are not an island and you being just at your nice home um, is not, is not what you are born to be in this world. You are born to be part of the society, part of the community, meeting with people, hearing people's stories, hearing their joys and their sorrows. So Rebecca, um, I have your book and I began reading the first few chapters and it caught my attention so much that I decided to research um, a, a little bit about you and your family. Um, I see that you have two kids. Um, can you just I actually have three kids. I had one, uh, which when you read the book and finish it, you will find out later. I had one when I was 16 in high school, and then the two little one now. Mm -hmm. gotcha. I haven't finished the book yet. I'm still reading it. Um, but I just, my question for you is, um, can you tell us your thoughts and your feelings about um, raising your kids within the climate of racial issues going on right now? Yeah. I think one of the interesting thing is like uh, the race issue in the United States is an interesting one for me, you know, because when I arrived, they were like America is a melting pot. It's like people from different background and the history of the U.S. have been a history of immigrants, you know, everybody coming from different, from Europe, from Africa, from wherever. Uh, either they were coming as immigrant or post people that came here like slave, you know, those people didn't come as immigrants, they didn't choose to come, right? So for me, like raising my children in this kind of environment, actually it was my son that I have been thinking a lot of what does it mean, like my kids are born here in the U.S., they are American, and they are like, uh, have, you know, the biracial kid. And so what do you um, teach them? And uh, with my upbringing back in Africa, you acknowledge people for what they are like they, my family member will be like oh you black but you white too but here in america if you are a biracial child automatically you are black and it was one of the thing when i had my kid and i had to feel out like i feel out i'm black you know i'm fine but then i'm like but my kid are not re they're not really black they have up and they're like well but there's no box for them they are black so they automatically black and I'm like, but that's not right. That's like, like you should at least let the kid choose for themselves, you know? That's, that, that's a huge decision to make that for somebody that don't feel like they part. So from the beginning, I was like, oh, oh, I'm raising children that probably will deal with different identity issues than me. And one of the things that my son said last year, he was only three years old. You know, he was like looking at his dad and he's like, Daddy, do you like my skin? Do you like my brown? He's like, Daddy, do you like my brown? And then his dad was like, Yeah, I love your brown thing. And he's like, Oh, mommy painted it. <laughs> you know? So it's like, even from the early age, they know, you know? And, and I feel like 
when people talk about race issues and somebody's like, oh, I'm not racist or like, oh, I don't see color, then there's an issue with you. We should be able to see color. You cannot see. Like I'm looking at your face. Now you're black and I'm looking at your face. She's white. And there's nothing wrong with like saying that because that's who we are created to be. Like we should never be diminished to not feel good about our skin tone, you know? Uh, but it's going further than that. Be like, okay, yeah, we are black, you are white, you are purple, you are pink, whatever that your color is. Um, but it's not about color. It's about our hearts and where our hearts are. And it's about coming together and working as community and empowering each other and working side by side. So that's what I would like the conversation here in the U.S. like, in the next couple of years, I hope I will talk more, but like really something need to be done where people are just put in a box automatically. You know, if you have a drop of little bit of black, therefore you are black, you know? And it's like uh, black, even like what is black and what is even white? Like white comes with different shades of white and black comes with all different shades of black, you know? Uh, so again, it, it just reminds me how deep race issues I hear in the U.S than even back home in Africa, you know, like in Africa, like, oh, you, that person is white, like in Swahili, they will say Mzungu, you know, uh, but that people just like, oh, you Mzungu, it's like, oh, yeah, but that's fine, like, it doesn't go deeper than that, people are just acknowledging what they see, it doesn't go further than that, but here in the U.S., it does go further than that, you know, if you are a person of color, that will affect how people will react to you, if you are a male or a female, you know, like if you are a male, you might seem like you are intimidating. If you are a female, then you are loud and, you know, all of that thing that come, you know, they, 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 yeah, so definitely. And then if you are white, then another issue that I would like to look is like you are white, but like as a white person too, we have diverse of white people, people who are privileged and and then people who are living and knowing are aware about the environment and people who are disadvantaged too, there are different levels, right? But generally we know that the emarginalized people are people of color because of historical fact and because of, a, you know, economic opportunity. So when I think of racism, I think it's just being, making them aware, making them aware like this is, this is your heritage, you know, uh, you are half, you are biracial, but you are more than that. You are a human being that is in this community. You happen to be born as an American, but you have a responsibility too to make sure that um, there is fairness here in America as well as the rest of the world because you are not important because you are American than somebody that is growing up in Africa or Burma, for example. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Rebecca. Uh, that was very helpful. Yeah, yeah I've uh, been called Mzungu a number of times uh, <laughs> at this point, <laughs> but I think it is an interesting thing to kind of bring up. What do you think kind of makes that difference as far as going back and forth between the two? I think what makes the difference in African contact is like people see, you know, people see your shit and they will say it, right? People don't dance around that. Even with black people, they were like, you really, really black because there are people that are black, like, um, and there are some that are lighter. They will say, oh, you are lighter, mm -hmm. you know? And so it's just naming the color. Like, you, you know, when you see a color, you are wearing a maroon, 
and a white hat, you know, I see that those are the colors and then it stop at that. But here in the US, when you are branded as black mm-hmm. or biracial, a go to that. It's everything is your identity. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, it will determine, you know, what kind of neighborhood you leave, what kind of services that you will receive, mm-hmm. uh, what kind of perception that people will have when they just see you. So it just have like a negative, um, yeah, negative thing attached to it here in the U.S. I think versus in Africa, people are just really literally naming what they see, they call it. Yeah, absolutely. Terms, you know, and like be like Muzungu, yeah, it's like a white person. But like when you deep, deep, when you dig deep into the word too, is associated with like education and thing like that, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So in Africa, even if they're saying your color is associated with like elevating you, then being negative, right? Yeah. Whereas when people, I feel like when people, like for example, I study sociology and they say, if you are a person of color, you are more likely to die, blah, blah, blah. Or like the police are more likely to pull. So already you associate the color with negative thing, you know? Yeah. It is, it is very interesting. Uh, like even in thinking about privilege and that sort of thing um, in a class that I'm teaching this semester, uh, I'm making my students take an implicit bias test Mm -hmm. and it kind of tests for those kind of things of like, what do you associate that kind of language with? Do you associate it with a person of color? Do you associate it with a white person? Um, That kind of thing. And I think students have been like very, uh, I guess it's been eye opening for them to see like, maybe I do have some of those like negative connotations um, towards people of color. And so I think that's a very important thing to, to talk about as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think you mentioned, um, talking, you talked about community a little bit ago, what, um, and, and kind of the importance of it, I guess you said during uh, your time in the refugee camp, I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about what community did look like for you then. Yeah, in a refugee camp, what community look for me is like, if, for example, when we were in a refugee camp, we pretty much get our ration from the UN. And then sometime, you know, your ration would run out, right? Like three days or four days before the next one. And you was, you, you go hungry, not having food. But if your neighbors have food, they will always like trying to like let the children eat with their kids. So was community being together because like in my upbringing, what is mine is just not only mine alone and my family is for my community. We, we are not individualistic. We come as collective, you know, and um, if one person is educated and make a salary, they will, and they buy a meat for their family, they will buy it for next door too, you know, because in my upbringing, it was not a good idea to just eat and see your neighbor not starving. Like, you will not even want to sit and eat that food, you know? Uh, so that was a community, a community too, when we were having crisis of receiving our loved one dying back from the villages or people that did not make it out of civil war will be like, if you mourning your loved one, people will come to you and take care of you for a week. Uh, even, you know, just being there, sit with you, cook for you, and just like let you cry and be there for you. So that was a community. Um, mm-hmm. um, and here in the US, uh, 
there are communities that are people, especially I feel like the millennium, you know, and younger generation are kind of more like community gear. Like when they're single, then you have a community of doing things. I would like to see more of that where your neighbor is just not your neighbor by address, but it's your neighbor by words, words and deed. And I was so, so surprised here in the U.S. even like when you have your neighbor, you you might like for example like i had a neighbor now we've been there for like um almost five years and we have never had dinner together that would have never happened in africa even the first week of moving in they'd be like hey come on over for dinner or you know can we come we have some we made something and we can join it with you and have dinner you know people are just more reaching have you been back to home before? I know you left at a young age to go to the refugee camp and then you came to the U.S. So have you been back? Yes, I went back in 2009 when I was doing my graduate work. That was my first time going back to South Sudan. Um, I was there for four to five months and then I came back. And then in 2014 and 15, I went back with the work with my job um, there and visit. But I haven't make it yet to the village that I left in 91 when I was six. And I haven't made it to my mom hometown or my dad hometown. I haven't make it there yet. Mm -hmm. What was that like for you visiting, visiting there again? Yeah, it was, you know, it was kind of healing for me to be able to go back to a country that I left when I was a child. Uh, I was taken away by the beauty, the just geographically beauty of the country, you know, very green, large, you know, different kind of wild animal. Um, so that was really, really beautiful. Uh, but at the same time, it was sad that I did not make it to the village that I left when I was six, the only village that I know, because there were a lot of insecurity still there. Um, so it is a trip. and. Uh, that I anticipate to take one day to be able to go back there. Uh, but regardless, going back was, was, was a, a healing thing for me. Throughout um, your book, at least what I've read so far, uh, you talk about the power of love a lot. And um, I mean, I don't imagine you would have a lot of peaceful stories from that time. Mm -hmm. But um, the power of love has been like a consistent theme. And um, well, this is not so much a question as just like a statement that I wanted to make. Um, I just respect that through all those scars and everything that you face, you were able to come out on the end with strength and resilience. And I'm, I guess this is a plug for um, me to encourage other people to read your book, What They Meant for Evil, because it's really inspiring. It was really inspiring for me, and I can't imagine how inspiring it will be for all those people um, today who are still suffering mm -hmm. through similar experiences like this. So I, I guess I just want to say thank you for writing the book. Yeah, thank you. And I talk there of the power of love, which is start with the self-love, you know? When I came and was in high school, I had a baby in high school, and I'm, I'm an immigrant, I'm a ESL student, don't know English, you know, already I had box already tick. you know, you are immigrant, you are a refugee, you are illiterate, you are a teen mother. 
So chances of making it were so slim for me to even be able to make high school, let alone being able to have a master's degree. So in a sense, that is to start with that self-love and to tell yourself that like I can do this thing. If, if I wake up every day and have a chance to sit in class, I will do that. So it is start with self-love and a love of community because it requires uh, resources to send me to school and it requires teachers to be there to be patient with me and teaching me English. Um, yeah, so it just kind of highlight love all across, you know, in a community of like, that's what it really means to empower somebody. You know, if you're talking about loving life for people, it means that you have to empower them. You know, you have to empower those people to live a meaningful life. Mm -hmm. I think that's, that's so good to hear you say too. And I think that's so deeply like rooted in scripture, like where uh, we're given the two commands, the two greatest commands to love God. And then a lot of people usually stop at and love your neighbor, but there's really that plug on the end that says, as you love yourself. And so it really does start with that self-love that you're, talking about there and from that then we can love our neighbor who hopefully isn't just our geographical neighbor that lives in the dorm building next to us um, but expands mm -hmm. further beyond that um, so love love hearing that and I think that is a very very key um, part of what you're talking about there yeah yeah mm -hmm. yeah like man you know love is an action right you know mm -hmm. it's not a verb um, and that action of love is like loving somebody as yourself. It's like if you are gifted and you are blessed and you're sending your kid to school and your, na your neighbor um, can't afford sending their kid to school, perhaps, if you can do it, maybe that would be the way to really love your neighbor as yourself. It's like lifting, helping their children. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think an another thing that I kind of thought about too, you talked about, just your experiences um, moving through the process of being in the refugee camp um, and even throughout your life, some of the difficulties you faced. Uh, talk, you talked a little bit about how that's really built your resiliency um, and in some ways has prepared you for uh, the pandemic that we face today, that uh, you've experienced that time before of not knowing what's coming next. And so mm -hmm. I wondered if you could just offer any advice to maybe some of the students who are on campus or even our faculty and staff members on how they can step into kind of that resilient mindset um, as we continue to face not only the pandemic, but um, the, the very political elections that are coming up this week. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. I think what I would give as advice to students and teachers is that um, in this pandemic, it's a time of reflection and uh, what become more clear is that uh, we are connected than we think. What affect you affect me. What affect another country, you know, in the beginning of the pandemic, it seemed like it was a far away story and then it hit us really quick and it bring the whole world down to its knees, you know. So that show that we are connected more than we think. And um, so with that thing, what does that mean then? Well, we have to care for each other and we have to be each other keeper. So for a student, it's like reaching out to other students, maybe like some students have a support system, they have families and some students, maybe they don't have families now. And so maybe this will be the time for you to step in and just 
be at their service, you know, like listen to them or if you go for a walk, include them, you know, or just check on them. How are you doing this week? Where are you, you know, mentally, spiritually, you know, and and just being a listener or just being there, go go do, you know, like do a, a um, like a uh, social distant tea time where you can even just have your tea in a cup and they can have their tea and sit across from each other and just like listen to a music if that's what you need to do, but at least show the person that, hey, I see you, I'm here for you. And for the teachers, uh, it probably will be like focusing on academic, right? Like how the kid will do well in the school, but at the same time too, going beyond that, you know, because your students are just not only their grades, they are people that have emotion and need. And if a student need more time to, to, to focus on the spirituality or something, maybe trying to tweak things to accommodate that, you know, where it's not, you know, um, helping them. And, uh, and then maybe this is the time too, to just teach about, teach, teach about lesson of life. Like, yeah, hardship is always going to be there and nobody's promise. Even here in the U.S., you know, we, we, you know, seem like everything is going well, but suddenly, you know, with this thing, we are like rest of the world now where we don't know. So it's kind of like teaching people that like the unknown is okay. You can sit with it. And, uh, and probably it's a time to even reflect on our, program like we American are just program like robot everything is a schedule you from this age you are in this grade from this age you are here from this age you graduated from this age you buy a car from this age you have your first time here from this age you are married from the you have to everything is program but maybe like that's not their real life it's not organic thing that open organically you know like that maybe it's a time to look into our heavily scheduled life and think about like okay you know what is important here? Mm -hmm. And maybe if you schedule like a lecture that goes for one hour and a half, maybe you need to cut 20 minutes to just ask each student how they're doing at the end or in the beginning, where are you, how are you doing? And like kind of uh, opening a space where people uh, accept um, to express their failure. Like, I feel like I'm not even gonna make it and that is okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think all of those things are very important, especially uh, with it being uh, in the middle of the pandemic and just all the hardships that are faced um, from every direction, it seems like. So thank you so much just for sharing that that with us, Rebecca. You're welcome. Now, do you have any other things that you think uh, would be uh, beneficial for the ENC community to hear in this season? Yeah, I think this season too is a season, like as we talked before, like love your neighbor has yourself maybe this is a season that you can yeah just look at your community if you are on campus but if you are off campus looking at your physical community there if you are at the apartment or in a housing like who are the neighbors there and who mm -hmm. need help? Um, there's a lot of people that you know either they are from a family that they don't have their families members around or they come from different countries and don't know things. Little thing that you can do, for example, if you have, you know, a mom or a dad that is a single dad or a single mom or a family that don't have a car 
maybe you can just do a simple thing like knocking them be like hey from being far away like do you need any help i can do grocery shopping for you if you want you know um just simple thing like that simple gestures mm -hmm. yeah that's really good because i think there and it kind of goes with the scheduling thing you talked about with americans that there's not a perfect cookie cutter way to love every single person you encounter Mm -hmm. um, so it is all about that actually seeing and asking uh, what that need is um, and how you can love your neighbors. So definitely, mm -hmm. definitely appreciate hearing that. Yeah. yeah. Well, Moesha, do you have any other questions? Um, no questions. I just, I just want to say thank you again. And when you talked about that community of, you know, having a meal with your neighbor as soon as you like moved into that neighborhood or something like that. I'm also from a different country, so that really resonated with me as well. So thank you for sharing. Yeah, and I just, yeah, personally, I just feel like there's something about food, you know, a food mm -hmm. like welcoming everybody at the table, mm -hmm. that everybody is like vulnerable, like just being there, you eating, you looking at each other face, you you studying a conversation there's just something that i think that just like a different kind of conversation that happen at the table when you're eating than when you are in some other setting and uh, that's why it's like so important and maybe for you guys it would be like as a community leaders in your community will be like okay maybe you know one friday a month or something like that we need to have like a pizza night together to just sit and talk you know like a you know how it's live or it could be like a tea you know or it could just be a game night or like you know i know now with the COVID 19 it's, it's hard to do those things but you can do even like a zoom kind of party you know friday night we're like okay you know how are you doing checking in and like oh this is what i'm doing you know it could just be simple thing like i have made a soup or i made cookies or you know whatever yeah but just being intentional being part of the community and being connected the whole idea is that just having a listening here to people and for you too to seek help if you feel like you need to like just be with the community now, maybe providing those kind of space. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really good. I saw um, a couple months ago, a couple of, or one of the professors on campus, a way that he reached out to um, another professor is they had a zoom night and he ordered pizza to be delivered to both of their houses um, oh. so they kind of did a combo of the mm -hmm. um, what you mentioned there so there definitely are creative ways to to love your neighbor mm -hmm. uh, so for any of you that are listening in um, that's kind of the challenge that rebecca is bringing to us today um, how can we love oh, our neighbor yeah, one thing I was going to add to is like the holidays are coming now, you know, and I'm pretty sure in your community that you are leaving or your teachers community, there are families that because of COVID-19, they're not going to be able to provide for the family. So like uh, gloves, you know, hats and a scarf, you know, just something like that. Do something for somebody. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, well, we thank you so much again, Rebecca, for um, just joining us today. And um, those of you who haven't read her book yet or listened to her message that she sent in for our fall series, um, we just invite you to do that. Um, I know that Moesha and I are both reading the book now and um, really enjoyed the message that she shared with us. Um, yeah, so that's I was going to add to like what's my book, what they yeah. meant for people. You can get it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. 
Target, Walmart, or actually wherever the book are sold. But the audio one, the audio part of my book uh, was uh, the voice is uh, Sidi Laloka. She's a South African princess, and she is the leading voice of in the Lion King, the musical. So she's the one that narrated the audio. So the audio is really beautiful. If you want oh, to no. listen to the voice of Sidi Laloka, the leading voice in Lion King, the musical, yeah. uh, you can, yeah, that's her voice. So that's the audio one. That's mm -hmm. incredible. Definitely going to be checking that out then.